I want to actually play a game with you. I want to um, show you a couple images and show you some logos. And if you want to put it in the chat box or if you want to kind of look to the person beside you or if you just want to scream it out for the universe, I'd love for you to say, okay, hey, here's the image, here's the company. And then bonus points, what's the mission statement uh, or what's their um, kind of goal um, as an organization? The first one, let's start off pretty easy, um, is this. Um, this lady siren, uh, mermaid figure, uh, green, you know, the star, all of that. This is the kind of iconic um, image and logo of Starbucks. So congratulations, you got that right. Um, bonus points, if you know it, Starbucks exists to inspire and nurture the human spirit. Okay, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. So they don't just sell coffee. They inspire and nurture the human spirit. How about this one? Um, Nike, right? And this is that checkbox. And Nike's mission statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And they have a little star on their mission statement because they believe if you have a body, you're an athlete, which makes me feel really good right now because now I can say I'm an athlete. Yes, and the final one, actually not the final one, we still have two more, um, is this one. And this little blue bird fluttering through the air is tweeting because it's Twitter, right? And Twitter, they exist to give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. That's why Twitter exists. Now, for a little bit of a harder one, how about this one? Okay, I was just checking to see if you're still playing and still paying attention. That's a naked mole rat. It's not a brand. It's just ugly, right? Um, here's the final one, and it's a cross. Um, what comes to mind when you see this? I think there are some people when what this brings to mind isn't maybe what Jesus intended. Maybe what comes to mind when someone sees this is hypocrite or bigot or closed-minded or anti-science. Those are some of the things that I've heard people say that comes to mind when this comes to mind. But I don't think those people get to define it. Now, they may describe what they've seen in it, but I think the founder should be the one who gets to define it, the one who established it, who understood its purpose and mission and what should be reflected through it. And one of the things that he said, interesting, when Jesus had gathered a crowd, and it was his first major speech about who uh, these new people he was creating um, were going to be, he goes through this famous section of this famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and this section called the Beatitudes, these marks and measures and indicators of what these new people called the church or Christians are supposed to look like. And he makes this statement. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So one of the things that Jesus intended to come to mind when people saw that logo of the cross was peacemakers. In fact, every single letter written in the New Testament, every single book wrapped up in the Christian scriptures, in that section that we call the New Testament, Every single one of those has a command and a call for us to practice peace. And the reason I think this is so relevant 
The reason I want to look at just one of those commands and calls this morning is because I don't know if you've found that in the meantime, oftentimes are filled with mean people. When people are going through hard times, it doesn't tend to bring out the best of us. It tends to expose the worst in us. People are a little less patient. They're a little less forgiving. I mean, whether it's scrolling through your social media feed and looking what someone else is saying about someone on the other side, or whether it's sitting in line at a grocery store and people are having to wait a little longer because of, you know, the reduced number of cashiers or whatever. It seems that sometimes in the meantime, people are mean some of the time. I've noticed that myself. Something fires me up and I'm a little bit shorter. And the people who pay for it are the people who are around you, or the people who are around me. And yet what's supposed to mark us, if we're Christians, is peacemaking. So how do we do that? How do we make sure in the meantime where it doesn't feel like all the pieces are there or all together? How do we make sure that we reflect peace? And to do so, I want to take you to a passage written by Paul. It was a letter. Paul's in prison when he writes this, and he's seeking kind of to outline this very answer of how do we practice this core identity as a Christian of being peacemaking. Now, the good news is, is if you're, um, if you're not a Christian, I'm going to give you more things to say what Christians should be doing. And if you are a Christian, then I'm going to give you a picture and a practice and a how-to to be a better peacemaker because that's who you are. It's found in the letter to the church in Ephesus, which Paul writes while in prison. Ephesus is a unique place because Ephesus, um, as a church, the Ephesian church starts with a lot of conflict. Literally, riots are breaking out in the city because of Christianity, because there's some fundamental tension around um, some of the challenges of Christian teachings. So all of this creates a tension and a frustration that Paul is kind of aware of. And and as he's writing a letter there, he's like, I want to help you be people who are peacemakers. And he says this at the beginning of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is a really loaded passage because what Paul does in this is, I think, give us some helpful handles to think around peacemaking. You see, he calls out the fact that make every effort. Effort is an interesting word. It's, it's a strain. It's hard work. He's saying, look, peace isn't the default. It's not what you drift to. It's not what you do just doing what you do. It's something you have to choose to do. And you have to make every effort. Look, conflict is hard. Nobody likes it. No one enjoys it. And if you do enjoy it, you're probably the person who oftentimes is the reason there isn't peace in your household. 
If you're one of those people who like provoking and stirring up just to see people fight. But most of us, if we're honest, don't like conflict in our lives. Even if you like poking the bear or making ridiculous statements just to see how people respond, you really don't like it when it comes into your personal life. So none of us enjoy it. And because our default isn't peacemaking, what happens is we turn to fall into other camps. And I think one of the things that's important to realize is that um, conflict isn't necessarily a sin. Conflict isn't necessarily a, is wrong. Conflict is a reality of living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, there is only one sector in human society where there is no conflict, and it's called a cemetery. It's the only place in human society where you will find human beings not arguing with one another. Because to breathe and to live means there's conflict. Conflict is oftentimes the catalyst for change and growth in our personal lives and in our relationships. Conflict can be an opportunity. But it's meant to be something we run to, not away from. But because it's not our default to peacemake, what happens is that instead of being peacemakers, there's ditches. And these ditches tend to be the things that we fall into because this is not the norm. The default is the ditch. One of those ditches is peace fakers, not peacemakers. Peace fakers are people who are kind of marked by if the adrenaline response is fight or flight, they're marked by the flight characteristic. They like to run from it. It's like the old comic strip that says that, well, we never talk anymore because we figured out that's when we have our fights, right? It's the couple, it's the, the family who doesn't bring up hard topics. Um, they avoid tough conversations. They deny that their reality's there or they blame game and they, you know, cast the reason it happened is because of you and so I'm just going to be passive about it. This passive aggressiveness this fleeing, this running away, and this eventual giving up on the relationship, that's what marks the peace fakers. It looks good on the surface, but underneath is death and disagreement. But no one's willing to say it. There's another side, and that's the peace breakers. And the peace breakers, that adrenaline response, they would be marked by the fight. It's the attack zone, as opposed to the escape zone of the peace fakers. It's put-downs, it's sarcasm, it's gossip to other people, it's public proclamations of their frustrations with the other person, it's sometimes physical fights, and sometimes spills into the area of criminality. That Paul tells us to make every effort in the meantime because he recognizes that most of the time our default is to peace fake or to peace break. In fact, you have a tendency, and I have a tendency. But the beauty of what Jesus is calling us to isn't to operate in our default. It's to operate in the new operating system, that new life, that new power that he gives to all of us who follow him. Which is why when he's writing this passage, right before he tells them to make every effort, he gives them the posture and the practices for how to do it. He says, make every, right, make every effort. Well, 
you're going to make every effort doing it this way, by being completely humble and gentle, by being patient, bearing with one another in love. He's saying, look, this is the practices of how you're to, to go about being a peacemaker. Humility and gentleness and patience. These are all kind of tougher words. He's essentially calling us to some core practices that emerge out of these characteristics. If you were writing notes, I would tell you to write down this statement. Don't sweat the small stuff, right? That one of the ways that we peacemake isn't through denial, but it's through intentional overlooking. Proverbs 19.11 tells us it's to the glory to overlook an offense. And that the way that we intentionally don't sweat the small stuff is we, we ask ourselves, is this an issue that's damaged the relationship permanently? Is this an issue that's caused harm for them or for someone else? Is this dishonoring to God? And if you're checking through those things and it's no, 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 then it's probably a no-go to bring it up unless you just can't get rid of it. Let's just be honest. I mean, a lot of times the conflict that comes, that arises, isn't a reflection of the other person. It's the reflection of the inner conflict that you and I have. I mean, how easy is it to have a bad day at work and to come home, and if you're married and you have kids, to lash out at your spouse or your animal or your children and kind of let it spill out over them? A lot of times what spills out of us is what's inside of us. It has nothing to do with them. The, you know, the milk that didn't get thrown out or recycled or the, you know, the dishwasher that didn't get cleaned. Like, it didn't deserve that level of response. It wasn't a big offense. It was something small. But because there's so much stuff inside of you going on, it kind of spills out and spills over. But oftentimes the conflicts in most of our lives are really a reflection of our internal conflict, not an external conflict, which is why Paul says be completely humble and gentle. Be patient because humility and gentleness says, okay, is this about them or is this really about me? Am I frustrated? Am I, am, do I have a lack of peace? Right now, I'm doing that a lot. I'm overlooking a lot of things because, honestly, we're in a tough time, and there's a lot of really difficult things people are going through. And it's one of the easiest ways we can peacemake. Not peace fake, peacemake. It's an intentional choice to forgive them, to overlook it, to say it's not that big of a deal. But if you're working through it, and reality is, is it has damaged the relationship, it has caused frustration, it, it has caused damage to someone or something, then you probably do need to address it. And it's not so much not sweating the small stuff, it's you being intentional about not spreading the big stuff. That peacemaking is inherently a private practice. It's not something you post on Facebook or social media. It's not something that you tell your 15 friends that you're going to eventually have this conversation with this one person. You know, well, this is what I'm going to say to them. Oh, have you said it? No, not yet. But I, they're a jerk, and they need to know that. And I'm going to tell them that eventually. Right? It's, it's something you do privately. 
If I have a private, dis- if I have a disagreement with my wife, you will never know it. If I have a disagreement with somebody on our staff, you'll never know it. Because at the end of the day, whether it's families or friend or employees or coworkers, if there's an issue that's there, you deal with it and you go to them privately. Because one of the ways that we peace break is we gossip. And that we tell all these other people how big of an idiot they are. And how ridiculous they are. We, we attack the person instead of focusing on the problem. We're not gentle when we do it like that. But if we're, we go to them privately with humility, with patience, with gentleness, assuming the best, then we don't fall into the trap of becoming like this. So this is a naked mole rat. And one of my private kind of goals for this message is to see how many times I can say a naked mole rat in the course of a message, which at currently is three. Now, what's fascinating is that Science Magazine this week actually had a report on some new research on naked mole rats. What they found was that naked mole rats actually have this tendency, they, they live in pods, and within a naked mole rat that is outside of the pod comes in, the naked mole rats can actually hear in the squeaks of the other naked mole rat a different dialect. And what they found is that naked mole rats actually don't like other different, distinct, outsider, naked mole rats. That's 10 so far, by the way. And what they found is that what naked mole rats will do is they will attack another one. They don't, they hear in the chirp an outsider's voice and they assume the worst and they attack and they kill them. This is a vicious creature. It's also an incredibly ugly creature. But the goal of Christians is to engage people around the problem, not enrage the person because we see them as a problem. That we're not to be like this guy. We're meant to be like what Paul says, completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, which means we see the problem not we see the person as the problem. And I'm saying that this is really critical because right now in our culture, there's this big tendency to see people as a problem. And when people become a problem, then we start to act like naked mole rats. And anyone who doesn't fit in our box, anyone who doesn't see the world the way we see the world, anyone who doesn't say the things that we would want them to say is an outsider to be cut off and excluded and to attack. We see the problem, not the person. And in fact, one of the things that I can normally tell when a relationship's in a dark place, in fact, I saw that a couple times this week in some conversations I had with people, where they, they stop assuming the best. The, there's not gentleness, there's not humility, there's not a willingness to say, well, maybe I missed something, or maybe I don't know something. The, the posture was, I'm going to assume the worst. And yet what Paul is calling us to is a word he's used before, the word love. He says we're to love people. And love assumes the best. Love has hope and expectation. Love has 
a posture that doesn't assume the worst on the other side. But here's the thing that's really important to know is that love doesn't mean fluff and, you know, like unicorns and cupcakes and rainbows. Love can be tough. Just because there's gentleness and humility and patience doesn't mean that we don't have to say hard things sometimes. Love just means that it's driven by the relationship and desire to take the pieces of the relationship and bring peace to it by making it whole again. And that tough love, as Bob Goff has said about words, tough love leaves stretch marks, not bruises. That tough love may leave you and the other person stretched a little bit, but it doesn't leave each other broken or bruised or damaged. And one of the measures of love isn't to get something off your chest, isn't to get something that's been bothering you off your chest and, well, I just need to say it to them. They need to hear it. No, the question is, do they really need to hear it? Is it going to leave them with stretch marks or is it going to leave them with bruises? See, it's not about you feeling better. It's about the relationship being better. There's a key distinctive in that because you can say a lot of things in the heat of the moment that's going to make you feel better and it won't do anything but make that relationship more bitter, more distant, and more damaged. We're naked mole rats when we do that. And on the off chance that maybe, because this is probably not you, this is more for me, on the off chance that maybe you were wrong or that you contributed to the conflict, I'd like to give you kind of the five A's of peacemaking when it comes to restoring a broken relationship or restoring and kind of navigating conflict where you actually did something wrong. The five A's are worth writing down because while it is simple, it is rare. But it's a formula that if you start to practice it when you engage with others around conflict, when you have to confess something you've done wrong, you'll find that these five A's can lead to reconciliation. And they go like this. Admit what you did wrong. You'd be surprised how oftentimes people skip this one and go straight to apologize. Um, most of us want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way it made you feel. I'm sorry that it hurt you. That's not reconciliation. That's not an apology. When you're saying that, what you're really saying is, I disagree. I think what I did was right. I'm, I know you feel like it was wrong, so I'm going to acknowledge that you feel like it's wrong but I'm not going to touch what I did to make it wrong. This is why you start up here. Admit what you did wrong. Understand from their vantage point what it was that you did or didn't do that led to them feeling like it was wrong. And then apologize for how your choice affected the other person, for how it had an impact. Don't just negate their hurt or their anger or their frustration, hear it. And when you admit what you did was wrong and you apologize for how your choice affected the other person, then you accept the consequences. You own the fact that there is some tension, there's some brokenness that crept in. And ask for forgiveness. To, to own what you said and, and how that landed and how insensitive it was and 
to, to recognize, like, I understand that right now you want some, you, you, want, you need some time because it really angered you, and rightfully so. I should have been more sensitive when I said that. I could have said that in a more gentle way, a, a more thoughtful way. And I, I would hope and I would ask sincerely that you would please forgive me for how I approached that conversation. And then alter your choice in the future. Say, okay, that decision needs to be different tomorrow. And in the process of practicing these five A's, we can actually start to see pieces restored and see peace restored in the meantime. But I understand. Look, what if you're like, well, no, 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 I get it. I get it. But what if the person is the problem? Like, what if they really are the problem? Okay, you've done step one. You've, you've kind of chose to not sweat the small stuff, and then it became some big stuff, and you privately went to them, and they rejected it. Well, then the next step is you keep pursuing in gentleness, humility, and love. You go back to them privately again. And if it's serious enough, maybe you bring one or two people that you both mutually respect who are committed to reconciliation, not being witnesses to a fight. You're not bringing your second-hand person for a duel. You're bringing your, someone who, with wisdom, can help to be a third-party um, kind of uh, arbiter to kind of help guide the discussion. And if after that it still doesn't work, then let me give you this disclaimer. Paul will write in another letter to the church in Rome, in, verse, um, in chapter 12, 18, that um, we should... Try to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you, which is a concession from Paul that it's not possible to, to please and to live with peace with everyone. There are some times it's just not possible. And you have to remember that you're responsible to other people, but you're not responsible for other people. That there are other people who make choices and decisions that you cannot control. And in those moments when the course of those actions, you're interacting with them and you recognize, okay, I, am, I have peace about this relationship because I've done my part, but I will recognize simultaneously I'm probably never going to have peace in that relationship. And those are the best times to kind of take a step back and to dig into something like Boundaries by Henry Cloud or to kind of invite some kind of wisely uh, like wise God count, godly counsel in your life to help navigate what does it look like to, to have boundaries and to add separation. Because unconditional love doesn't mean that you have unconditional acceptance of what they do. And that in those rare and difficult moments, you may have to bring some separation in order to preserve the, re the, the relationship for down the road. But those are rare. Those aren't as common as you think they are. And if you do, if you are in a situation like that, we would love to pray with you, help you, serve you, provide any wisdom or uh, kind of references. I was working with someone just recently where they were having some relational tensions, and I directed them to some counselors in their area who I thought could be helpful for them. Sometimes we need outsiders' perspective to bring clarity about what's actually happening and that there's something 
incredibly freeing about having godly, wise counsel, like the book of Proverbs talks about frequently, to give you perspective about what you're walking through. But the reality is, the reason I say that's rare, is that peacemakers are who we are. Right? If you remember in the passage at the very beginning, where Paul has called us to be people who pursue peace, and that this is to be the practices that mark our pursuit, that ultimately this is the posture that we're supposed to have. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You see, if you're a Christian, the reason you are a peacemaker is because you follow, you are being transformed by the Prince of Peace, whose life and death demonstrated the path to peace. But very practically, the reason we're peacemakers is because if you have Christ, then you have peace internally. I don't know if you've noticed this, but most peace, most problems and lack of peace, most conflict aren't because of external things. They're because of internal conflict on the inside. Jealousy, anger, lust, coveting, right, hating. Like, it's the internal conflicts on the inside of us that creates the lack of peace around us. My worst moments as a husband and as a parent, as, as an employee, employer, as a friend, often are marked by the moments where I have the least amount of peace inside of me because it's spilling out of me. But what Jesus invites us all into is a life where peace is our foundation. You see, Jesus didn't come to bring external peace. That's a separate conversation I could have with you one day if you ever want to know the history of the first century kind of Roman Empire. But there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of government frustration and tension. Jesus didn't come to bring external peace because he realized that the lack of an external peace is a symptom of a deeper sickness of the lack of internal peace. As a pastor, I see this when I walk into the rooms of people who have been um, kind of diagnosed with a terminal sickness and they know they don't have very, very long left. And one of the burning questions oftentimes people have is that lack of peace on the inside about what's next. And this fear that if God grades me on the good I've done and the bad I've done, I don't think I've done enough good to be good enough. And that internal anxiety, that lack of peace marks those final moments of their life. But I think that the beauty of the Christian faith is that you can have peace in every single moment. If, if I die leaving here today, I'm at peace with that because I know internally I already have peace. And this isn't some pie in the sky. This isn't just some kind of fleeting, silly notion that is only reserved for pastors or spiritual leaders. This is something promised to every single person who's a Christ follower. It's why Jesus said, you are peacemakers. This is why he called us constantly to be people of peace, because we have it and we can reflect it because of the peace that Jesus brought to us through what he took on the cross for us. And that that choice to accept what was done to him that didn't get done to us satisfied and brought 
the pieces back together and to rem- that remove the separation between us and God. That grace covers the guilt and the shame and the concern and the lack of peace. You can have that today. That's not some byproduct of climbing a mountain and, you know, closing your fingers and your eyes and meditating or reading a bunch of self-help books. No, it happens when you look up to heaven and realize heaven has already provided all the help you need. And it does something internally. It shifts something. At the beginning of the early of last year in 2020, I, was, um, I took a comedy class, a stand-up comedy class. I decided um, I wanted to be funnier. And, and since I knew I was already really funny, I just figured I really could take it to the next level. <laughs> Not really. And so anyways, I, um, I would go every single week to the stand-up comedy class um, in Cambridge. And there was 12 of us in the class. And one of the rules for the stand-up comedy class is everyone had to deliver a bit. Like they had to kind of deliver this five-minute comedy routine every single week. And all 12 people had to give a response to your comedy piece. And as I would take the train in um, or I would drive, one of the kind of conscious choices is I would say, okay, I'm showing up, and God, I have peace. I am already full, and I'm filled. Help me to empty my cup into these people today. In fact, that's kind of one of my prayers for almost every conversation I have. If I ever have a meeting with you, probably I've prayed before that meeting, God, help me to pour out. It's not my job to fill your cup. I can't fill your cup, but it is my job to empty my cup and to pour out what I have. And so I go in, God, they have needs, they have dreams, they they have a will that you have for them. Help me to pour into that. And so I would have that kind of internal conscious choice every time um, I would go into the comedy class. And one of the things that becomes very quickly apparent if you ever take a stand-up comedy class is that most people's comedy comes from their pain. Most people's comedy is rooted in their insecurities and in the brokenness of life. And sure enough, it was. Every single week I would hear um, funny, sometimes not funny, Uh, stories or comedy bits, but I always heard pain. I always heard pieces of their life that had been shattered. I always heard and saw the holes in their lives. And and with each one of them, I would be like, and I'd listen and I'd pour out a little bit more. And by the end of that comedy class, there was this really awkward moment for me where um, somebody had stood up and they delivered a piece and I'd kind of noticed this over the course of a few weeks and I I commented on something specific. I actually kind of put my finger on a pain that they'd had that had been a theme through all of their things and just kind of encouraged them and also noticed some growth in them. And anyways, so when I delivered that, the person stopped and said, hold up, who are you? Like seriously, Like, who are you? And other people in the class were like, yeah, who are you? Like, where'd you come from? And and in the midst of the whole discussion that was playing out, what they were trying to figure out is exactly what we've talked about today. I, I would come into that classroom already full, right? If you're a Christian, you have already been filled up. You don't have to walk into a room or into a relationship waiting to have something poured into you. You already are full. And if you don't feel full, it's because you've believed the lie that you're not. Because Jesus has already filled you. 
He's given you security. He's given you love. He's given you peace. He's given you joy. You are already full. And you get to pour out because you're not desperately grasping for someone to pour into you. It doesn't mean we don't have holes and we don't have leaks, but it means that every day God is just pouring into us that peace that we have through him. And that we do this because we want to live a life worthy of the calling. Not to get peace, but because we already have it. Because when you already have it, you're free to pour it out. When you already understand that God forgave you for your worst, that God pursued you even when you were running from him, it changes how you treat people who hurt you. It changes how you run towards people in their conflict. In our household, one of the things that's true about the cause is we don't run from conflict, we run to it. Because we value the person more than the problem. That's the problem. And that in a culture, in a culture right now that seems obsessed with reducing everyone to a position they hold, to a political view or some ideology around some cultural hot topic, that one of the words that's kind of bubbled up is this idea of cancel culture. That, and that's fine if the world wants to do that, but we as Christians, we don't cancel anyone because we recognize that God never canceled us and, and we deserved it. And if God never canceled us, then who am I to cancel them? Who am I to reduce them to just one single dimension of who they are. That if in the meantime, we recognize that we have the ability because of the peace we have in Jesus to be peacemakers, then we can avoid the trap of being this guy. Because the world's got plenty of them. What they need is more of him.